A Father in heaven, the gracious one, the, the I am who I am, the one who is so good to reveal himself to us. Each of us, Lord, you have come and you've revealed yourself by your spirit and opened up our heart to respond to the gospel, given us a love for Jesus Christ. Lord, we pray that you would come again today and sanctify your people. And as we consider this whole area of despondency, depression, hopelessness, Lord, we pray that you would arm us for the, the fight and the battle, that we would not give in and wallow in it, but that we might rise up and be able to rejoice in the Lord our God. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In 1731, a man by the name of William Cooper was born. Uh, his name is spelled C-O-W-P-E-R, but instead of Cowper, it's actually pronounced Cooper. When he was 21 years old in 1752, he was only 21 years old, he wrote these words. I was struck with such a dejection of spirits as none but they who have felt the same can have the least conception of. Day and night I was upon the rack, lying down in horror and rising up in despair. I presently lost all relish for those studies to which before I had been closely attached. The classics had no longer any charms for me. I had need of something more salutary than amusement, but I had not one to direct me where to find it. During his life, he had four great bouts of depression. Now, in his day, they didn't call it depression. They called it melancholy. Four great bouts, and those came in the month of January, almost always 10 years apart. And 10 years later, he had another of these great bouts of, of melancholy, and he tried to kill himself on numerous occasions, but was never successful. So he was committed to an insane, an insane asylum. It was called uh, St. Albans Insane Asylum. And there, under the ministry of the doctor, Nathaniel Cotton, who was an evangelical Christian, who was ministering to his patients not only for their emotional needs, but also for their spiritual needs, uh, the doctor left a, a Bible sitting on a bench in the garden. And Nathaniel, I mean, William Cooper sat down on that bench, saw the Bible, picked it up, and read. This is what he says. This is when he is 31 years old. Having found, having found a Bible on the bench in the garden, I opened upon the 11th of St. John, where Lazarus is raised from the dead. And I saw so much benevolence, mercy, goodness, and sympathy with miserable men in our Savior's conduct that I almost shed tears upon the relation, little thinking that it was an exact type of the mercy which Jesus was on the point of extending towards myself. I sighed and said, Oh, that I had not rejected so good as a Redeemer, that I had not forfeited all His favors. Thus was my heart softened, though not yet enlightened. So he doesn't claim that he was converted yet, but God was working upon his soul by showing him how good he was to Lazarus and his family. Then he opened his Bible and he read Romans 3.25, which says, Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. 
And this is what he writes after he read that verse. Immediately, I received the strength to believe it. How often do you hear a conversion like that? I received the strength to believe. But that's how these guys wrote in the seven. I like the old guys. He said, and the full beams of the son of righteousness shone upon me. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement he had made, my pardon sealed in his blood, and all the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment I believed and received the gospel. Whatever my friend Madon had said to me long before revived in all its clearness with demonstration of the spirit and power. Unless the almighty arm had been under me, I think I should have died with gratitude and joy. My eyes filled with tears, and my voice choked with transport. I could only look up to heaven in silent fear, overwhelmed with love and wonder. Now here's a man who they said was insane, going through deep depression of soul, and he found Christ. And Christ gave him such joy, he said, I think I would have died unless he had held me up. Now, we expect, after reading a conversion like that, that the rest of his life is going to be one of victory and overcoming depression, right? We expect that he's going to grow on in the strength of the Lord. But that's not William Cooper's story. He struggled his whole life with depression. Even after this occasion, he tried to kill himself on a number of occasions. He believed, eventually, he had what he called the fatal dream of 1763. And in this dream, somehow, he came to the conclusion that though everybody else who believes the gospel can be saved, he couldn't. He believed that he was reprobate, that God had consigned him over to damnation, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. And he struggled with that the rest of his life. And it, for all we know, he died hopeless. There were times when he had glimmers of hope, when God, in spite of this conviction that he had about himself going to hell, God still gave him glimmers of hope, but he, he, he led a miserable life. God, in his mercy, led him to Olney, which is in Britain, where John Newton was the pastor. Now, you know who John Newton is. He, mo he wrote the famous hymn, Amazing Grace. He was a very happy and healthy pastor. And John Newton became his shepherd from 1767 until the rest of his life when he died in 1800. So for 33 years, John Newton was a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Even after John Newton moved away to pastor another church, he would write to him again and again. He would take William Cooper with him on pastoral visits. And as they walked, walked for, for hours getting to these various homes and things. They would talk about God and his purposes. And Newton, knowing that it would be good for William Cooper, and knowing that William Cooper had the mind of a poet, said, let's write a hymnal together. And they did. John Newton wrote over 200 hymns, and William Cooper wrote 68 hymns that are part of that hymnal. He wrote some famous hymns. We sang one this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood. William Cooper wrote the words to that hymn. A man who was once pronounced insane, who went through these massive bouts of depression, who thought he was consigned to damnation, wrote the glorious words that we read there. He also wrote the hymn, God Moves in a Mysterious Way, His Wonders to Perform. He wrote, Oh, for a closer walk with God. So you can tell that it, in moments of his life when he was more able to believe 
that the Spirit of God worked through him in amazing ways, giving solid, deep, God-centered, God-glorifying lyrics that the church still loves and embraces to this very day. So all of this is confusing to us. We wonder, how can that be? How can this one person feel so dejected in spirit that they try to kill themselves on many occasions, but yet on other occasions be able to write the most wonderful God-glorifying lyrics? It reveals the complexity of this thing we call depression today. They called it melancholy. I'm going to call it despondency today. I'm going to refer to this as despondency. Now, why did Cooper struggle so much with this? We'll, we'll never know all of the reasons, but let me give you just a few brief facts about his childhood that might help to, you to understand. His father, John, married his mother, Anne, in 1728. Within three years, three children had been born to them, and all three died. In 1731, three years after they married, William Cooper was born, and he survived. After he was born, two other children were born and died. Then his brother John was born and he survived. Six years after William Cooper was born in 1737, his mother Anne died. And that was a traumatic loss for him as a little boy of six years old. His father, I don't know what was going through his mind, his father sent him off to boarding school at six years old. And for the next four years, little William Cooper was there and he was brutally tormented by, by bullies. And reading through the lines, I, he probably, we can't know this for certain, but it, as you read some of the things he wrote later, he was probably sexually abused there at this boarding school. So he was traumatized. His home life was filled with sadness and heartache, with all the, the loss of these brothers and sisters, and then his mother, who he was the closest person to in the world, dies. Then he set off to be away from everybody that he knew at six years old to a place where he was tormented and brutalized. So the seeds of this, of these trauma lasted with him, it appears, through the rest of his life. Sometimes the things we endure as young people can have an effect on us, even after we're converted for the rest of our days. And so this yeah, just reveals how complex the whole subject of depression or despondency is. Now, I don't think, I might be wrong, but I don't think anybody here probably has suffered to the degree that William Cooper suffered from this, this condition, despondency. I know some of you do, and you, it's, it is a real struggle for you, but probably not to the same extent. I learned this week that, well, let me just start with this. Let's, let's get the definition of what we're talking about on the table. I'm going to define despondency as a state of sadness, gloom, Dejection, despair, or hopelessness. And you have all faced that to one degree or another. I thank God that I've never had a real serious bout of depression. It seems to come quickly and leave fairly quickly with me. But some people, they're not as fortunate as that. Um, it is the most prevalent and serious of mental disorders in the United States. Women seem to struggle, or they're twice as likely to suffer and face depression as men are. It afflicts about 20% of our population sometime in their life, and one in eight people will need medical attention for despondency during their lifetime. 
So it is very likely that to one degree or another, all of us are going to battle despondency. And so we need to know how, how God wants us to battle it. There are many different causes for despondency or the clinical name that we use is depression. Sometimes it can be genetic. It seems to run in families, passed down from ancestors to their offspring. Nutritional deficiencies contribute to this. Physical problems, physical illnesses can contribute to despondency. Various medications can bring it about. Certain personalities are more likely to have despondency. Lack of sleep can trigger it. And traumatic life events can also trigger this. Now, however, or for whatever reason, we face despondency. Whenever it comes, Satan will paint it with a lie. When he comes to us, he'll tell us, you're never going to be happy again. You're never going to be strong again. You're never going to enjoy life again. It's hopeless for you. All is over. You're never going to have a sense of satisfaction and purpose. And instead of this being a dark tunnel that we have to go into and then emerge into the sunlight, he paints it as this endless cave that we just keep walking deeper and deeper and deeper and it gets blacker and blacker and blacker. That's what Satan likes to do. But God has called us to fight despondency through faith in his promises and in his word. In 1954, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a series of sermons on, um, he called it, when he put these into a book form, he called it spiritual depression. And he says in that book, the greatest need of the hour is a revived and joyful church. Unhappy Christians are, to say the least, a poor recommendation of the Christian faith. Now, does God want us to wallow in depression and despondency? Does he want us to lie down and let despondency roll us over like a Mack truck and just sit there and take it? No. God's revealed will in Philippians 4.4 is to rejoice always. Again I say rejoice. 1 Thessalonians 5.16-18 Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will is that we are always rejoicing. Now, of course, if we are wallowing in a sense of depression and despondency, we can't rejoice. We can't be rejoicing at the same time. So I believe you may not be able to help the onslaught of despair or despondency, but you can fight it in Jesus' name. And that's what I want to help you with today is the fight. We're going to look at two different people in Scripture who fought despondency. One from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament. The Old Testament example is a son of Korah. We don't know a whole lot about him, but he wrote Psalm 42. And we're going to look at his writings in Psalm 42 and see how he battled despondency. Then we're going to go to the New Testament and look at the example of Jesus Christ because he also had to face something of despondency. So let's, let's go ahead. Back to Psalm 42. We'll start there. And we're just going to read the whole psalm to begin with. Psalm 42, verse 1. And we all know this verse because we sing it all the time. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. 
When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, Where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night. A prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where's your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Now, the first thing I want you to notice about the author as he writes this psalm is that he was despondent. He was battling depression. We know that from verse 3. He says, my tears have been my food all day long. He's crying. He's weeping. Look at verse 5. He talks to himself and says, why are you in despair? Oh, my soul. Why have you become disturbed within me? So his soul was in despair. His soul was disturbed within him. And then verse 6, he says, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning? So you put this all together, and he's crying. He's mourning. He's crying out to God, telling God he's in despair. He's talking to himself and asking himself, why are you in despair? Why is your soul disturbed? Now, can anybody relate to this psalmist at any time in your life where you wondered, why in the world am I so down? What in the world? Sometimes we're down and we can't even figure out why, right? You people ask us, why are you down today? I don't really know, but I am. <laughs> the psalmist was in the same condition. Now, let's look at the reason for his despondency. We know that this psalmist was a lover of God because he describes himself like a deer. And he says, just like the deer is panting for the water brooks, he says, my soul is the same way. It's panting for God. My soul is thirsting for God, the living God. And the reason that he, he's feeling this anxiety and this this despondency is because he's asking himself the question when shall i come and appear before god you see from verse 6 we discover that he's not near jerusalem where the temple was and where the the jews would worship god together he's way off verse 6 says he's way off in the land of jordan and the peaks of hermon this would have been up by the Sea of Galilee, 75 to 100 miles away from the holy city of Jerusalem. 
And while all the other people are in Jerusalem worshiping the Lord, he's separated from them. He's excluded from them. He's way off in this wilderness. And he says, when shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night when they say to me all day long, where's your God? These things I remember. What things? He rem he's going to tell us. And I pour out my soul within me. I used to go along. This is what he's remembering. I used to go along with them with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. He remembers the time when he was part of the worshipers in Jerusalem at the temple. And he used to lead them this throng of worshipers as they went up to the temple to worship and sing and offer their sacrifices to Jehovah. And he says, I used to do that with joy and thanksgiving, and it was like a God festival. It was wonderful, and I missed that so terribly. And now I'm separated from the people of God off in this howling wilderness, and I'm depressed. I want to be with the worshipers of God, but I can't be. So that's the reason for this despondency in his life. I wonder if you've ever faced a time when you were excluded from the people of God. For whatever reason, you could not or would not be part of a church. You weren't there with your church family. Maybe you are in the hospital. Or maybe through circumstances, you were traveling and you couldn't be with the people of God and you started to feel low in spirit after a while because there's strength that comes to us when we gather with God's people. Well, let's look at how this psalmist fought despondency in his life. He did not lie down and let it roll over him like a bulldozer and just flatten him. He fought it. First of all, he scolds himself for giving in to it. Notice what he says in verse 5. Why are you in despair, O my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? In other words, snap out of this. <laughs> my attitude is not becoming to a servant of the Most High God. With all that God has done for me, I ought to rejoice in Him. Why am I going around mourning and my tears being my food day and night? This is just not right. And so when you find yourself in despondency, become aware of it, recognize it, and start talking to yourself about it. You might even scold yourself like the psalmist does. This is just not right. You're a child of the Most High God. Secondly, he preaches to himself that he must hope in God. He's not just scolding himself, but he's preaching to himself. In verse 5, he says, Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. There's going to be a time when I get to go up to Jerusalem again. There's going to be a time when I yet again praise the Lord with all the other worshipers in that festival with joy and thanksgiving. So the greatest remedy for despondency is hope. Remember, despondency is a form of hopelessness. You lose hope that you're ever going to feel good again or some other thing in your life. You need to have hope. And he's not telling himself to have any kind of hope, like worldly hope or secular hope. He says, have hope in God. There's a world of difference between natural hope and spiritual hope. Maybe everything's going wrong in the natural for you. But I don't care how much is going wrong in the natural for you. You can always have spiritual hope in your God. There are promises He's made to you that will always be true. I don't care how much suffering you're going through naturally. So you can preach to yourself. 
Scold yourself and then start preaching to yourself. Turn your eyes away from the thing that has got you down and fix them on your God and place your hope in what God is going to do in your life. And then thirdly, he reminds himself of what he knows to be true. We find that in verse 6. Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Notice this word, therefore. Because I know that my soul is in despair, therefore I remember you. When he was in despair, he purposely shifted and fixed his eyes on God and remembered God, who God was and what God had done for him. Notice verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my salvation. In other words, even though I'm up in this howling wilderness, away from the people of God, God's still with me. And he starts pursuing communion with God. He reminds himself that this God is a God of loving kindness. God commands loving kindness on his children. I'm his child. I don't have to feel like there's no hope for me because God is with me even where I'm at out here away from the temple. I can still pursue the Lord. I can still praise him here. I can still have communion with him because he says his song will be with me in the night. In other words, even though I'm way far away from the temple, I'm going to sing to the Lord. Not only that, I'm going to pray to him, a prayer to the God of my life. So, He's seeking communion now with God, and he's remembering who God is, a God of love who delights to bless his children with his presence and with his gifts. If you ever find yourself like the psalmist, maybe in a hospital or a nursing home, shut away from fellowship, I want you to go back in your mind to Psalm 42 and I want you to read this again and I want you to meditate on the words of Psalm 42. I don't care what's going on in your life. You can find the loving kindness of your God. He's there for you. He loves you. He will bless you. If all men forsake you, God will never forsake you. He'll never leave or desert you. And then the fourth thing he does to fight depression, despondency, he prays to God. His rock in verse 9. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? You see, even though he is cut off from God's people, he wasn't cut off from everybody. There were mockers and scoffers surrounding him. You find that in verse 3 and verse 9 and 10. Verse 3 says that they're saying to me all day long, where's your God? Verse 9 why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Verse 10. As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where's your God? So instead of having people supporting him and encouraging him, he's got these enemies and these adversaries who are scoffing at him and mocking him for his faith constantly. He says day and night where his tears were his food. All day long they kept saying this. So there's a battering ram coming against his faith and he feels the force of that and is causing him to get lower and lower in spirit and starting to feel dejected. But in spite of all that, he scolds himself for giving in to despondency. He preaches to himself that he has to hope in God. 
And folks, you and I should be doing these things, preaching to yourself, talk to yourself, tell yourself the truth. He reminds himself of what he knows to be true. So if you're starting to feel low, start reminding yourself. You can say it out loud. <laughs> Lord, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If you are for me, who can be against me? Just starts quoting scripture. And then he prays and he unburdens his soul to God, his rock. Now, I find it interesting in verse 9 that he even says to God, why have you forgotten me? Have you ever felt in your life like God had forgotten you? Just forgotten you're there? He just kind of skipped over you and he's looking after other people? Have you ever told God that, that that's how you were feeling? Now we think, no, I, I could never do that. I'd be so irreverent to tell God that I feel like he's forgotten me. I would be embarrassed and even ashamed to tell God that. But the psalmist apparently didn't feel embarrassed or ashamed to express to God his real, honest feelings. And I don't think we need to shy away from telling God how we're really feeling. Now, of course, we know our feelings are not right, but it doesn't help to try to pretend they don't exist. Sometimes we think, well, should I even do that? Is it, is it right for me to be honest with God about these feelings? I know the feelings aren't right, but God's got big shoulders. God can take our foibles and weaknesses and mistakes and all of that and I think it's healthy for us to unburden our cares upon the Lord. He even tells us that in 1 Peter. Cast your cares on Him because He cares for you. Now what's the outcome after He fights depression in all of these ways? Verse 11. Here's the finality of it. Hope in God, for I shall yet praise Him. The help of my countenance and my God. Now, verse 11 is almost exactly the same as verse 5 with one very tiny change. It's the last phrase of each of those verses. Verse 5 ends up with this. I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Verse 11 ends, I shall yet again praise him the help of my countenance. He starts off by saying, I'm going to praise him for the help of his presence. By the time he's done battling, he says, I praise him for the help of my countenance. Now, the countenance is the expression of your face. That's your countenance. His countenance was dejected. He was facing his shoes, looking at the ground. He had these low spirits. And by the time he had battled this despondency, God had helped him with his countenance, and he was lifting up again. God is the lifter of our heads. He enables us to look back up and see him again. So there we've got the son of Korah battling despondency and finding victory through recognizing despondency, preaching to himself that he must hope in God, reminding himself of what he knows to be true about God, and unburdening his soul upon God. Good application for every one of us. Now, let's go to the New Testament and let's look at the example of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 26. We're going to pick it up in verse 36 and read down through verse 39. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. 
Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. In Luke twenty-two fifty-three, Jesus said, This hour and the power of darkness are yours. And he was talking to those people who had come to arrest him. This hour and the power of darkness. As Jesus is about to face the horrors of Gethsemane, the powers of darkness are washing over him. Ephesians 6.12 calls it the world forces of darkness and spiritual forces of wickedness. And I believe there was probably the greatest battle that Satan ever hurled against anybody was being hurled against Jesus Christ as he goes to this garden and he prays and he seeks his Father knowing what God is calling him to do, but in his humanity, shrinking in horror from what he's going to have to face within 24 hours. Satan is letting loose a volley of those flaming arrows. Thousands of them are directed at Jesus Christ. And of course, we don't know exactly what Satan is saying to him or whispering in his ear, but maybe something like, you know, it's not worth it. It's no use. What God is calling you to do isn't going to work. Trying to find some chink in Jesus' armor. Maybe what he was trying to do is produce such a despondency in Jesus' life that Jesus would give up and not go through with the Father's plan. Now this is speculation. I don't know. I'm just trying to understand what might have been happening in the mind of our Savior. Remember, he is fully God, but he's also fully man. And you see... You see sometimes elements of his humanity and sometimes elements of his deity, but he's always fully God and fully man at the same time. What this teaches me is that despondency in and of itself is not sin. Because Jesus never sinned. But yet he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. I don't know even if William Cooper ever experienced despondency like Jesus did. So it's not sin to experience the onslaught of depression in your life. But I think what is sin is if you don't battle back. A bomb's dropped on you. What are we supposed to do? Turn on the air raid sirens. Run to the bomb shelter and get our anti-aircraft uh, artillery and start fighting back. If we just let Satan mow us down, that's when we've we failed. So I want to encourage you, when you're feeling down, fight it. Fight it. Now, how did Jesus fight this grief of spirit in his life? Well, interestingly, number one, he chose some close friends to be with him. In verse 36, Jesus came with them, the eleven, to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, the three disciples that he was closest to. He said, I want you with me during this hour. Come with me. And so they went further along with Jesus Christ. So Jesus chose three close friends, and he wanted those friends to be with him. Good example. I don't think it's helpful when you're facing depression to cloister yourself off and refuse to be around any other people. It may feel like that's what you want, but I don't know that it's healthy 
to just stay away. And sometimes when we get depressed, we don't want to go to church, right? We don't want to be around other Christians. That's the worst thing you can do is just stay by yourself. When Jesus was facing the greatest trial of his life, he chose people to be with him during that time. Secondly, he opened his soul to those people. Notice verse 38. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Here was their savior, their leader, their king, their Messiah. And he's being vulnerable by telling them, you know, he, he wasn't, he didn't have it all together at this moment. <laughs> he's saying, my soul is so grieved. My soul is on the point of death. I need you to stay here and watch with me. So I want to encourage you when you're going through depression, tell a trusted close friend about it. Do what Jesus did. Unburden your soul, not only to God, but find somebody that you can trust who's not going to judge you, but who will stand by you and tell them about this turmoil of soul that you're facing. Thirdly, Jesus asked for their prayer in the battle because he tells them in verse 38, keep watch with me. Jesus was keeping watch as he prayed to his father and he wanted them to watch and pray. Of course, they let him down. They failed. But Jesus desired their prayers, their partnership in the battle with him. And so, if you have one, two, three close, trusted friends in your life, ask them to be in prayer for you because you're going through something. Even if you don't even know what it's for or why you're facing it, follow the example of your Savior. Say, hey, would you just pray for me? I, I'm not sure what, you know, why I, I'm feeling so low, but I just am. Would you just pray for me and lift me up today? And I'll tell you when the Lord delivers me. <laughs> and then number four, Jesus poured out his soul in prayer to God. He says in verse 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. If it's possible. I don't know if it's possible or not, but if it is, let, and the cup he's talking about is the cup of the Father's wrath. Let that wrath pass. Folks, we, we have no conception of what Jesus was about to face. No conception. The suffering he faced was not just physical. The most intense, agonizing suffering Jesus faced was of the soul. As the sin of the world, the penalty for the sin of the world, was being placed on him, and he was enduring God's wrath for sinners. Being separated from his father. And so he's pouring out his soul in his humanity, saying, Lord, if there's any other way, if it's possible, take the cup away. I don't want to drink it. I, I don't want it. But then number five, he resigned himself to the sovereign wisdom of God. And he said, yet not as I will but as you will. And this is where we've got to come in our despondency. We have got to recognize the sovereign wisdom of God in our life and resign ourselves to it. We've got to trust that God is in control when we can't see how he is. We've got to believe that our God is the God of the nations, the God who controls all things, the God who works according to the counsel of His will. He's the God who causes all things to work together for good. We need to remind ourselves of who He is and resign ourselves to His sovereign wisdom. And then finally, we're not, we don't find this one from this text, but finally what we know about Jesus is that He fixed His hope on the joy 
after the cross. Because in Hebrews 12, verse 3, it says, Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. There was a joy set before Jesus Christ that enabled him to endure the cross, endure the sufferings. So if we put all this together, how did Jesus battle despondency? He chose close friends to be with him. He opened his soul to them. He asked for their prayer in the battle. He poured out his soul in prayer to God. He resigned himself to the sovereign wisdom of God and fixed his hope on the joy that he knew was still there for him. And this is the way we fight it. Exact same way. We have to pour out our soul in prayer to God. We need to resign ourselves to God's sovereign wisdom. That will help you with despondency. If you know that God has a good plan, even though you can't see it right now, that God loves you, God's going to bring you through this. And then fix your hope on His precious and magnificent promises in Scripture. And what I want to do this morning is just leave you with some of those precious and magnificent promises. In fact, does anybody have an extra sheet? This, There we go. I won't turn to them. I'll read them. We can read them together. Now, again, this is just a sampling of some of the promises of God that I found in my search. This is just a sample. It's like a sample tray. <laughs> There's a lot more in God's Word, and I want you, as you read the Word day by day with an open notebook, jot down some of these promises for you to lay hold of when you're going through deep Trials and afflictions. Psalm 3 3. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. Read it. Repeat it. Memorize it. Think on that. Psalm 30, verse 5. For his anger is but for a moment, his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night. But a shot of joy comes in the morning. We need to believe that word. Psalm 32.10 Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Sometimes, it's always surrounding us, but we don't sometimes see it, or feel it, or recognize it. But God commands his loving kindness towards his people. In fact, the end of Psalm 23, he says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And the word follow there means to pursue or to chase me down. God's chasing you down to show his mercy and his loving kindness to you. Psalm 34, 17. The righteous cry and the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. Psalm 37, 23 to 24. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. And he delights in his way. When he falls, he will not be hurled headlong because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. When you're facing deep affliction, believe this promise. The Lord has your hand and he's not going to let go. He won't let you go. Psalm 40, verses 1 to 3. I waited patiently for the Lord, and He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction, out of the miry clay, and He set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth, 
a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. Learn from the example of the psalmist. He was in a miry pit. He calls it the pit of destruction. But he called out to the Lord and the Lord drew him out. Sat his feet on a rock and actually did wonderful things through his life. Many people saw and feared and trusted in the Lord because of his deliverance. Well, let's go to the New Testament. The words of Jesus. John 14, 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. What you need the most when you're facing despondency is faith. And of course, it's not faith in anything. It's faith in the Word of God. And so, believe in God. Believe in Jesus Christ. He can deliver you. John 16, 33. Jesus said, These things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. But take courage. I have overcome the world. The world is not greater than our Lord. He has overcome it. Or Romans 8.28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Tell yourself that. Keep telling yourself that in the midst of your low spirits until you believe it. Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? Whatever you need, between now and heaven, you can know God will provide that for you. He won't let you suffer without what you really need. Or Romans 8.38 and 39, For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Your depression can't separate you from Christ. I don't care how low it is. If Christ has a hold on you, you think you're strong enough to break His grip? No way. No way. James 1, 2-4 Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Why? Because God's doing something in that trial. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. In other words, okay, you're going through trial. You're going through affliction. You're feeling low. Remind yourself God is working right now in your life through that. He's producing Christ-likeness in you. Something good is coming out of this low time in your life. Tell yourself that. That's true, right? That is true. Satan tells you a lie. It's hopeless. This is the Word of God. Or Hebrews 13, 5, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. God has not deserted you. He has not forsaken you. It may feel like He's forgotten you, but He hasn't. He knows all about you. He knows everything going on in your life at this time. Trust Him. Believe Him. So this is just a sampling, but I urge you, my friends, you, maybe some of you are going to face despondency this week. Don't give in to it. Fight it by using the sword of the Spirit. The verses I've given to you this morning should be like arrows. Fill your quiver full of these arrows. And when despondency comes at you, take one out and start firing. Say, I will 
attack. I will be victorious over this. The Lord wants me to rejoice in Him, not to wallow in self-pity or to wallow in my affliction. He wants me to rise up and rejoice in Him and to hope in Him. Oh, God, help us. Lord, we turn to you and ask for your help this morning. We know we are prone to just wallow in our down spirits when we ought not. We pray for grace, Lord, to attack and to fight when Satan comes against us with these trials that we face. I pray, Father, that each one of us would store up your word in our heart and that we would be active, not passive, but active in pulling out the arrows and letting them fly at Satan. We pray this in your holy son's name. Amen. Amen. Amen.